Hello and welcome to Going Viral, the podcast all about infectious diseases. I'm Mark Honigsbaum, a medical historian and science writer. We've heard a lot about the resilience of doctors and nurses during this terrible year of COVID. But in this episode, I'd like you to spare a thought for another group of key workers, health and science journalists. From the moment in March 2020, when it became clear that COVID-19 risked overwhelming the National Health Service, the coronavirus has rarely been out of the news. The result is that readers who had previously struggled to understand basic mathematical and epidemiological concepts have become adept at employing terms such as the R number, while politicians have been forced to acknowledge the value of following the science, or so they claim. For this special episode of Going Viral, hosted by the Department of Journalism at City University of London, I spoke to three leading journalists who know what it's like to confront the Prime Minister at a Downing Street COVID briefing, or to take complex scientific terminology and translate it into everyday English. My guests are The Guardian's health editor, Sarah Bosley. I think I was saying right from the beginning, actually, we're not doing what the WHO said we should do, and there's no reason why not. Victoria MacDonald, the health and social care editor at Channel 4 News. One thing you cannot be when you're a health journalist is a hypochondriac. And I wanted that story anyway. Nothing was going to stop me from going into that intensive care unit. And the Independence Health correspondent, Sean Linton. I've been accused of scaremongering at times by certain people. My standard response was, it's not scaremongering, it's just scary. Of course, none of them have faced the same risks as frontline health workers. But the pace has been relentless. And in their desire to bring us the truth about test and trace, or the risk of the NHS running out of critical care beds, they've come in for their share of abuse. And at times, the experience has been traumatic. But after years of hearing about their colleagues' exploits in foreign conflict zones, they wouldn't want it any other way. COVID-19 has been very much their war. So what's it been like being on the front line of the story of the century? Here's Channel 4's Victoria MacDonald. The most incredible, challenging, intellectually stimulating, frightening, exhausting, emotionally draining year. You know, there have been times when during wars or something and I've envied the foreign desk and said, Day after day, it's been Iraq or Syria or whatever, and that's not to diminish in any way the importance of that reporting. But after about three or four months, it would slowly start to tail off, and then you could get other stories onto the program. This has just been day after day after day. I'd be doing one story, the main package, usually the lead package. And then I'd have to do a live because there'd be another breaking line. And you were constantly trying to keep up and trying to be accurate and trying to do the best for your viewers. And it's been crazy. Okay. Uh, Sarah, how's it been for you? I, I agree totally with, with Victoria. And I think the analogy is a good one. And I've been using it myself to say that I, it is like what I imagine it's, it's like to be a war correspondent, because you are right in the thick of it, right in the very centre of this story. And the bombs are dropping in every direction. And, you know, you're also at risk yourself. So it 
has been a sort of nightmare to cover, certainly because you want to do your very best. You want to get to all the really important things and make sure that you do it properly and that you guide people and tell people what's really happening. And the pressure on you to do that when the entire world is consumed by this pandemic is is really intense. So it's been day and night, you know, all day, most days. Uh, it has slackened actually recently, and that's quite worrying too because I think I must be missing something, you know. But looking back at it, I will probably think one day that it's been the most um, extraordinary and um, maybe even rewarding experience of my journalistic career. But at the moment, it doesn't feel that way. It feels <laughs> it feels pretty dreadful in some some in some ways. And Sean, same question to you. What what's it been like for you covering this? unfolding crisis yes well um, unlike sarah and victoria who have been in their beats for many years doing great respected journalism i joined the independent just effectively a few months before this crisis really kicked off so i had lots of plans my first year at the independent uh, all of which went straight out of the window and I would agree with what both Sarah and Victoria have said about the effect, the exhilaration, the pressure, the the fear, and all of those kinds of descriptors that we could mention. And, and I think the one thing I would add for this is that you know when this started, all of my usual tools that I use in my journalism, notably meeting people and being in places, overhearing conversations, the gossip in the back of the conference hall and things like that, all, all of those sort of person-to-person tools were removed because I've effectively been imprisoned in my one-bedroom flat in East London for the last 12 months. So everything's, the journalism has been done very digitally, which actually has been really quite discombobulating at times to be at the centre of a a global story that actually I'm still only seeing literally my my other half and that's it for the whole whole of the day. So it's been very, very odd and disconcerting in that sense. But I think overall, we've done a pretty solid job of keeping people informed, but it's certainly taken its toll on me and, and my colleagues without a doubt. At what point did you realise that the coronavirus outbreak that began in Wuhan was going to be a big story? I'm going to hold my hands up here and admit to being one of those people who was lazily complacent about this virus for for a little bit too long. And in in fact, I, I was downplaying it for quite some time and suggested to lots of people that it would be like the swine flu or SARS and it would it would die down and disappear and not be the problem that it eventually became. So I'll hold my hands up and say I got I called it wrong at the beginning. But when I first sort of was rocked back in my chair was when I uh, actually spoke to an intensive care doctor who was working in northern Italy in sort of early March, February time. And, and she was describing the scenes that they were experiencing in, in Italy. And we hadn't yet seen that in the UK, although we'd, we'd started to see the first emergence of cases in February. But she was she effectively told me some appalling things that really went on. And the reason she was speaking to me was she wanted to pass the message to the UK to get ready. And that was really quite a a moment for me, actually. And she was describing things that were just, you know, in a modern country uh, like Italy, she couldn't really explain the, the full gravity of it, but it came across in her words that she was very frightened. And naturally, we wrote that story. And actually, I started to get lots of response from clinicians here in the UK who said, you know, they had their own network 
networks of friends and contacts around the world. And and similarly, they were beginning to fear that as well. So I think for me, that was when I think I first felt that. And, and of course, it was a very rapid acceleration from that point on. Uh, and Sarah, same question for you. Yes, well, because I my remit's always been global health, I was actually watching it from January, from when the WHO first started to tell us that things were happening in China. No, I didn't concern myself too much at that time. But it really, although I was writing about it and watching it and thinking, ah, yes, but we had had epidemics, pandemics before. We've had swine flu, for instance, which turned out to be something of a damp squib, certainly by comparison with this. But then I interviewed in London, Professor Gabriel Lung from Hong Kong University. And that was early February. He was on his way to a meeting of the WHO in those halcyon days when one could actually travel to meetings. And first of all, he wouldn't come near me. It was the first example I'd had of somebody who wouldn't shake hands. And then he said to me that this virus could infect 60% of the world's population. Uh, And that was the first time I'd heard anything like that. And I, I went back to the office and thought, that is far too scary. I cannot write that story. But I did write the story. And I'm very glad I did because he was so right. That shocked me into realizing that this was going to be really very, very serious. I have to say that actually Victoria called me quite early on in this and and brought me in and I remember our conversation and uh, I think it was at the end of January and I was very wary as a medical historian of overhyping it so I was very cautious about what I said. So Victoria what point did you become concerned? Well I think what Sarah was saying slightly resonates with me about the about that idea of hearing those astronomical numbers and thinking I can't possibly write that or say that in my case on TV because that's going to scare people, but thinking something terrible is coming our way. I was reporting on it from January in China. I was reporting it happening in China. I wish I'd been there, but I wasn't. And then, yes, I mean, I spoke to you and I began to get very worried. And then, as Sean says, those scenes from Italy, because then it brought it so much closer to home. And I think it was actually the WHO meeting that Gabriel Lung was on his way to, which I went to in Geneva. And you had a room full of experts there who were not socially distancing, it has to be said. They were all quite tightly packed together, but they were worried. And I think at that point, I realized that this wasn't necessarily going to be swine flu, which, as you say, didn't really take off and that we needed to get ready. Did I think it would last this long? No. Did I think as many people would die? No, none of this has been in our lifetime. So you couldn't psychologically prepare yourself for it, or even at that moment, completely scientifically prepare yourself for it. You famously asked Boris Johnson a question early on, one of the, I think, only the second maybe COVID Downing Street press conference of whether he planned to continue shaking hands. Victoria MacDonald from Channel 4 News. Um, There's been a bit of confusing advice about things like shaking hands. Yes. And I'm intrigued to know whether you've developed a personal policy yourself. So next time there's a visiting dignitary and you're standing on the doorsteps of Downing Street, are you going to shake their hands? And if not, how are you going to avert a an international incident. No, well, I, well, Victoria, I can tell you that I, 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 am shaking hands. Continues. I was at a, I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were, a few, there were actually a few coronavirus uh, patients, and I shook hands with everybody. Uh, you'll be pleased to know, and, and I continue to shake hands. And uh, uh, I think it's very important that we, you know, people obviously can make up their own minds. I think the. Matt has said that people must make up their own minds, but I think... I don't feel incredibly proud that, that, you know, this is the most famous question I've ever asked and 
entire very long journalistic career. And it genuinely was out of interest. I wasn't trying to trick him or trap him. He did that all by himself. You know, at that time, there was you know a whole lot of stuff over whether we should be wearing masks and nobody was. There was the, you know, should you be touching? Should you be hugging your grandmother? All of that was still slightly up in the air. We, and people hadn't got used to the idea of having to socially distance and so on. So I was actually literally, if you listen to the end of my question, which always gets cut off, it's what are you going to do when you're stand, standing in front of Downing Street and a dignitary comes up to you and, you know, it's Obama or whoever or whatever, and you're going to shake their hands? Well, are you going to do that? Well, of course, what I didn't realize was there would be no standing at the doorstep of Downing Street and dignitaries coming up. But his response was absolutely breathtaking. What are you saying? And you could see all the press officers at Downing Street, the colour draining from their faces and Laura Koonsberg and and a couple of the other broadcasters, Beth Rigby, I think, and they both turned and said, good question. Well, I'm very glad you did ask it, Victoria. Um, So by March, of course, both Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock were saying and stressing that, or pledging rather, to follow the science, that they would be guided by the science. What was your initial immediate reaction, Sarah, perhaps I can ask you this first of all, when they said they would be following the science? What thoughts flashed through your mind? Uh, (laughs) Scepticism, because... It's not what you expect of politicians, particularly. They had in place, obviously, Patrick Vallance and, and Chris Whitty. I, I thought that they would be good, but chief medical officers even have um, a history of being ignored by politicians. So I just thought, yes, OK. I think, if anything, I would have expected them to follow the science that suited them. And what those of us who work in this area know very well is that you can select your science. You can pick the bits that actually suit you and that are convenient to follow. So I would have expected them as politicians to put together the package of science that was most convenient for them. We we didn't know a great deal, however, about coronaviruses to, to begin with. And all this business of actually contact, touching hands, and people were terribly anxious about the tube. I remember the London tube. They were really worried that they'd catch it from holding on to the bars. And in, in the end, it has turned out that virtually, I think nobody, I think it's been a study to show that nobody's been infected on the tube. So what I'm saying is that the science has developed. You'd need to be very smart indeed to be on top of all of the developments all the time. And I'm sure witty and balance are, but then they have to persuade the politicians to come along with them. And it obviously, right from the start, was not going to suit them to shut down the UK. The lockdown was very late and you know, lockdowns don't work for politicians. You know, Economically, politically, they're a disaster. So it was no surprise, really, that there was a huge amount of foot dragging. And I was constantly listening to the WHO, listening to Tedros saying, you know, test, trace, isolate. And we just let that go quite early on. So they were not following the science, not science as a by the WHO anyway. So Sean, if I can come to you uh, from your point of view of covering the Department of Health, covering the health service, you know, there must have been moments when official statements or pronouncements from government departments that were cloaked in science or came with the imprimatur of scientific evidence conflicted with what your sources and information you were gathering. How did you navigate and balance those conflicting claims. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think you've touched on, I think, probably what's been one of the hardest 
elements of this crisis, which is you can choose the science these days. Uh, There remains today active debate around whether or not we are properly following the science, in particular in hospitals with infection prevention rules around masks and types of masks and which staff are at risk. And and certainly back in 2020, there, there was some real concern for the staff and their safety. We now know that that was fully justified and that far too many patients caught coronavirus through nosocomial infection or spread within within hospitals. And the science around that and the debate around that at the time was really quite feverish. And it was, you know, you were right in the middle because the NHS England in its typical style and the Department of Health were saying everything's fine. This is the guidance. Everybody's following it. We're, we're, hospitals are safe for the, the staff, etc. I mean, the staff were telling us something completely different and, and particularly around the PPE shortages very early on as well, when really that, that started to look like quite a disaster. And you had, you know, nurses and talking to you about having to sort of repurpose things to wear as PP and uh, all sorts of stuff like that. The, the fear amongst staff was very, very real. And so navigating that and trying to find the right voices to elevate to in your stories was the real challenge, really. And I have to say, I can't be on this podcast without saying that without the Science Media Centre, which uh, helps journalists, connects journalists with scientists, they have been absolute godsend throughout this crisis. They've given us a way to quickly access scientists who can speak authoritatively on things. And one of the last Science Media Centre briefings that was held in March was with Neil Ferguson from Imperial. And it was just, uh, I think it was around the 16th of March, I think it was, just when they revealed their shock paper that kind of effectively put the country into lockdown. And it was it was an in-person briefing full of journalists. Uh, I can visibly remember when Neil was spelling out the consequences of no action uh, and the death figures that we would see if nothing was done. And I remember, I think it was Tom Whipple at the Times and and a few others, for, we, we sort of exchanged a look that was just sort of sheer disbelief slash horror. That was a pivotal day, I think for the story. Uh, Victoria, did you ever feel under pressure to kind of support official messages, government messages about what the science was telling, about what uh, precautions were necessary? In other words, to bat for the home team? Well, I wouldn't have put the question quite like that because I don't think Channel 4 News is known for batting for the home team. But we are a public service broadcaster. And I did take that responsibility very seriously, but exactly in the same way that Sarah and Sean have talked about. We were experienced, all of us, health reporters who were facing something that was unknown, had many unknowns by many people, including the people you would normally go to. And there was a great deal of uncertainty. So I took a decision very early on to err on the side of caution if I thought there was any doubt about it. And sometimes that did fall into what the government was saying. But you had to keep a degree of scepticism. Of course you did. And, you know, going back to, I think the thing that will come out, actually it's already come out, is the the test and trace issue and why we were being told that they were no longer testing. And instinctively you felt that wasn't right. You know, I had the added elements of watching my family and what was happening in New Zealand. And I was I was watching New Zealand shut its borders, lock down immediately. 
And I was thinking, well, okay, the UK, it's bigger, it's got more international flights coming through, you can't compare the two. But at the same time, I was thinking, why have we stopped testing? And you you just had to believe them at the time that it wasn't necessary. Well, it turns out there wasn't the capability. And that, I feel, is, well, it, it still annoys me, even now, because I think that there wasn't a great deal of honesty around that decision. And I think we played along with it because we had no other source, no other way of getting at that story until maybe a month or so later. And I wish I'd pushed harder on it. I wish that I'd thought to myself back then in March, we should be really drilling down into this. There is a massive responsibility on you, actually, in a, in a crisis like this, not to alarm people too much, while at the same time trying to hold government to account and test the truth of what they're telling you. And it's been it's, it's quite difficult. Um, I've found myself sometimes reining in The Guardian. You know, I'm, I have been right at the centre of this in that other journalists come to me all the time for steers. You know, are we right in saying this? Should we say that? The leader writers come to me. Can you just read this and make sure I've got it right and that I'm not saying anything too crazy? So there's a huge responsibility on people like us that we are supposed to know these things. And you've got a cast of thousands of people, basically the entire newsroom, who are also at it, you know, and trying to ferret out stories. So in that context, you end up with some people turning up things that might be pushing it. They're they're sort of trying to find holes in what the government's doing, as opposed to just testing the truth of it. And and that's, I, I found that quite problematic, because there is sometimes an assumption on the part of some journalists that anything the government does must be crooked somehow. <laughs> you know, you can't believe in the truth of it, so there must be another story. That sort of attitude can help you to uncover things that are wrong, but you do have to be terribly careful in a situation where people's lives are at risk. So we did have to test the truth of what they were saying really carefully, and we did find them out and, and test and trace I think I was saying right from the beginning, actually, that that we're not doing what the WHO said we should do, and we ought to be doing that, and there's no reason why not. And also the the fact that Public Health England, but also the the all the public health people who work in local authorities and so on, have been cut back. You know, we didn't have sort of public health infrastructure that we needed to cope with this pandemic. So those are things that you really have to have a go at. But at the same time, you can't frighten the horses. You know, you can't make people think everything the government does is wrong because the bits that are scientifically led dictate, you know, led obviously by Valance and Witty, for instance, and other scientists like Jeremy Farrer. I mean, those are good things. So there's that very difficult line to tread, I think. I think I've certainly found myself being a sort of mini help desk for the rest of my colleagues at the the Independent, who are all excellent, but obviously they look to me for that specialist knowledge. And yes, reining them in sometimes, and also giving them some encouragement to say, no, you're onto something, go for it. And it's been interesting that we've converted the almost the entire newsroom into a health team at one stage or, or another. And I think it's interesting as well from what Sarah was saying around the, you know, helping people and, and the responsibility you have especially when people's lives are at risk and I've certainly felt that during this crisis because there were times when not so much with the government but between NHS England and the management of the NHS and on the ground experience of the staff were just completely polar opposite 
And we wrote some stories, particularly around the sort of Christmas, early January time, when it felt as if there, there was a, a, a serious problem in some hospitals in London and the southeast. And this just was not being openly described by the government or the NHS. And we had some stories that came to us from staff talking about terrible situations with uh, intensive care units, two, 300% over capacity. I genuinely was really sort of struggling with, you know, if we report this, we are going to terrify not only people in the local area, but just generally start hairs running. What people don't realise with journalism is you they never know what goes on behind the scenes. They don't know what you're working on that never makes it into print for various reasons. And the things that you either self-censor or that you drop because it just doesn't quite have the legs. And that there's an awful lot of work that goes on out of public view, fact-checking all of this and balancing, is this in the public interest? Are we doing the right kind of journalism there? And, and I think overall, I think we pushed it I think, to the right level. I've been accused of scaremongering at times by certain people. um, But of course, my standard response was, it's not scaremongering, it's just scary. And actually, that's quite legitimate to report, especially when you've got NHS England saying everything is, is fine. And going right the way back to the start of this, in February 2020, we wrote a story around the concerns over intensive care capacity in the NHS and the the possible risk of rationing of care. And at the time, a number of clinicians publicly called me out on social media saying this was scaremongering, this was wrong, the NHS would be great. And you know, NHS England was rubbishing the story to other people, etc. And then as time went on, a few months later, actually, we did start to realise that there genuinely was a problem with capacity in intensive care. And I think some of our articles have proven to be justified. But the judgment at the time throughout this crisis, so some of those moments were really felt really quite precarious that we were falling into the trap of terrifying readers versus telling the true story of a pretty terrifying pandemic. Was it difficult to gain access to those wards, to tell the story, to show viewers what actually COVID meant if you got severely ill and had to be intubated? How difficult was it to persuade hospital managers to give you access? It wasn't hospital managers that you had to persuade. It was NHS England. And NHS England's iron grip on access, I think actually counted against them in the end. They weren't letting people in. And we were hearing the stories. We were seeing, you know, because it's easier for newspapers because you can write about it. On TV, you've got to get into that ward. And it was very frustrating. And when we got in, finally, in March, and I think that was... That was partly the pressure from the managers and the staff saying, we want the public to see what's happening here. We need people to be a little bit more scared. We need people to be taking care because they will end up in these wards. And, and they want that visual effect of it in a way which is so powerful on television. So finally, it happened. Then it all started to slow down a bit. And then the second wave started. Oh, the same thing happened again. And in fact, it was worse in the second wave. We couldn't get in. But what we were getting this time were clinicians who were way more prepared to speak out this time, way more prepared to take their own photos and share them. They weren't waiting for the cameras to be allowed in because they didn't know again when that would happen. Finally, we got in and it was even worse, really, than in the first wave and very, very emotional 
I would hope that when this is all over and done and dusted, NHS England and the Department of Health and Social Care and, and to some extent Public Health England, well, anyway, they've gone, but going, that they will reflect on how much they tried to shut us down at the beginning. You know, I'm way too old to be starting to develop a whole new set of grudges, but I do hold a grudge against the way we were prevented from reporting a pandemic, a national emergency, a crisis that we were kept away from. It didn't serve anybody well. I guess one of the big lessons is that if you're not transparent, you create a vacuum into which conspiracy theories have free reign. When I was finally allowed into a hospital um, in the second wave in Milton Keynes, I'd been on the ward, done, uh, met a pregnant woman. So, uh, so I've become very interested in the number of pregnant women who have been um, pairing in intensive care units in the second wave. Uh, and she'd given birth to twins, hadn't seen them right until the day we got there and she was allowed to see them for the first time. And she'd obviously been through an awful lot having been on intensive care. So I came out of that having done a story that, again, I was very moved by. And I was standing outside Milton Keynes Hospital waiting to do a live. And this man and his and his wife drew up in a car behind us going, oh, it's all a conspiracy. You know, there's nobody in that hospital. All the wards are empty. And then somewhat contradictory, he said, well, they've got actors in there. He was immovable and loud and it gave me that first real feel for how difficult it was going to be to deal with these conspiracy theories. And this man had just come out of the hospital being treated because the hospital had managed to treat, keep two pathways open to their credit. The lack of transparency and access from NHS England, and as any journalist who's gone to them with very clear questions and received a completely nonsense response will appreciate, this This was just standard practice for them pre-COVID, to be honest. But uh, just at my own little example, the Nightingale Hospital in London, when they started that, and all we were asking for was access to see how that was working and talk to the staff there, etc. And I was completely denied any information about the Nightingale Hospital. And when they do this, what they don't realise is that they make it easy for someone like me to actually generate my own sources and leaks. So what I ended up doing was every time the Nightingale Twitter account was tweeting positive TikTok videos or goodness knows what else, I would just respond with saying, how many patients are you treating? And I started to sort of almost effectively troll the, the account. But the point to that was that the staff who worked there saw these repetitive tweets and they started to talk to me. And eventually we ended up with an exclusive insider story with four or five staff from the Nightingale who revealed that they didn't have enough staff, that there were only a handful of patients there and that this was not the project that was sold to the to the public. And that was all generated by NHS England's lack of openness, which could have been avoided if they had been more open. And, and there's, there's hundreds of examples of that throughout this crisis. You know, there was a sort of state control here going on. What Victoria and Sean have said, I would absolutely support and it's been frustrating for everybody who's been involved and uh, our photographers have been driving you know tearing their hair out because they don't get access either and I have found that from the UK perspective everything is channeled through the DHSC through the Department of Health so even at one time you were trying to talk to Public Health England and they'd say no we can't talk to you we're not allowed to you're going to have to talk to the Department of Health and that was controlled literally by Downing Street and Cummings and whoever else was in charge so we were absolutely not getting proper information and sometimes they simply wouldn't answer my questions at all 
All of that is really stupid, shooting yourself in the foot, because we just get the more suspicious um, because we're being treated that way. You're listening to a special edition of Going Viral, hosted by the Department of Journalism at City University of London. How difficult has it been for you to uh, make sense of all the different data trial results uh, that are coming through about these vaccines? Sarah, I noticed that when you write about this, your phrasing is very, very specific and careful, exemplary, actually, but it's quite hard to do, to balance and write about it in a way that's accessible. Well, thank you. Yes, it is difficult. It's got to be right. You know, on a thing like that, it has to be absolutely right. Um, And right to a degree that scientists would accept that it's right, which is, (laughs) Uh, luckily, I have been writing about vaccines for a long time. You know, and obviously through the MMR, I've got such a long history, I'm afraid. (laughs) I was actually there at Wakefield's press conference in 1998 when he said, you know, that he'd made the link to autism. So vaccines have been a massive issue in my work and in in the health field generally since then and before. I have got used to writing very careful stories about the benefits of vaccines and the possible disadvantages as well and the side side effects. The difficult bit wasn't the papers coming out, the results of the big trials. And I have to say, I was leaping about in my this tiny box room when the the first results came out, which were, I think, Pfizer-BioNTech's results. So 90, 95% efficacy, I know from experience, is huge. And I was thinking that we'd end up with something like malaria, where you get a 30% effective vaccine. Not the latest one, but the, the previous one. But but writing about those is a fairly standard process. You've, you know, uh, there weren't any really nasty negatives to to have to write about at that stage. But then, of course, you got you came to the AstraZeneca blood clot issue, and that is a very much more difficult situation. That's a fascinating story, actually. That's gripped me more than anything, probably. The ups and downs of that one, which involves everything you can imagine. It involves a lot of politics, a lot of anxiety, a lot of painstaking work on the part of the scientists, but also some incredible cock-ups, I think, on their part or between them and, and AstraZeneca. All of this stuff has to be done very carefully because you have to be so careful not to fuel the hesitancy, not to give people ammunition for wacky theories about why vaccines are going to be harmful and not good for you. It's been a bit of a nightmare. In fact, I think this is almost the bit that I've least enjoyed because, you know, there's virtually a paper a day now giving you different efficacy rates and one dose versus two doses, whatever. And and I try and remind myself that the WHO was asking for 50% efficacy and what they've got is significantly more. So there might be variations in it. But then, yes, you introduce the blood clots and again, you're thinking to yourself, You don't want to encourage, as Sarah said, the vaccine hesitancy, but you can't ignore this either. So I pretty much went with the bodies of scientific evidence, as it were. So if you had the European Medicines Agency or the WHO or the JCVI, I relied on them to sort of soothe me in a way so that I could then present it in as measured a way possible to the viewers. Because, you know, I get bombarded as as Sean and Sarah will daily by people who don't agree with any of this and who have their own pick on the science. And you have to weave your way through that and think, 
are they on to something? If I report that, what will be the consequences? It, it is actually, it's testing. I mean, you know, I'm not a scientist, a scientist by background at all. All of this, I rely on the scientists. And it's just experience that, that tells you who you go to, who you should listen to, who you should put on television. But every day you report on it feels at the moment like a minefield. For me, this is about communicating risk, uh, and that's really difficult for journalists. And I investigated the um, swine flu vaccine pandemics a few years ago, and a very legitimate uh, issue with that vaccine that's been revealed. And that story that I wrote two years ago has been recirculated and gone viral during coronavirus by people using it as an example pandemic vaccines are unsafe and actually what was has been so frustrating for me is that if you actually read the article it actually is an argument in favor of the covid vaccines because they have been used and tested through proper clinical trials which the pandemics vaccine was not necessarily and the the differences are quite stark and yet people the readers themselves choose what they read even in your own article so communicating risk about vaccine is just it's just a minefield for journalists and very frustrating when even when you've done your hard work and you present the data and the readers still just cherry pick your sentences uh, it's very frustrating and, and a, a big challenge for all of us one of the, the things this pandemic has done is it's shone a very harsh light on health and social inequalities in society. How did you approach that story? It hasn't gone away, has it? No, it hasn't. And actually, I think there's still a lot more to to write about that. And the NHS has a pretty dire record in its treatment of its ethnic minority staff, both in terms of just their general treatment by their bosses uh, and their experiences of, of working in the NHS. And we know that, for example, large numbers of ethnic minority NHS staff work in frontline patient-facing roles. They are the porters, the cleaners, the doctors and the nurses, much more likely to come into contact with covid patients uh, than managers working from home or or in a management suite off-site. Um, and so I think that that plays into this. And the debate around whether they are still being adequately protected is ongoing. Uh, and the arguments around COVID being airborne and use of surgical masks versus FFP3 masks and things like that, that's still a live debate. And I think when the, when we have the inevitable inquiry, this will this will play a big part. Of course, there's an inequality and race issue across this the whole country at the moment. And health inequalities specifically are such a huge challenge. And if you take a look at outcomes data across a whole load of different diseases and, and conditions, races seem to suffer worse than, than white British. And that's just unacceptable. And we've seen us going backwards on, on this. And I think if the levelling up agenda of this government is to mean anything, then it has to be closing some of these gaps post-COVID. That's, that's got to be a big target, I think, going forward. We've seen a deluge of preprints. So these are not peer-reviewed scientific papers, but of course they're released instantly on the internet and they get picked up, particularly by lockdown sceptics. Did you ever think you'd be using the phrase preprint in an article, uh, Sarah? Uh, no, <laughs> definitely not. Uh, and 
Yes. I mean, one of the frustrating things for me, actually, is how there's a deluge of information and there's no embargo on any of it. And one of the wonderful things about proper scientific publications is that you actually get some time to read the damn thing. You know, with something like a preprint that goes online and is immediately open for everybody to read and and tweet and everything else, you have to make an instant judgment. And it's it's really difficult. But actually, in COVID, We've been incredibly responsible and uh, we have said these are preprints is not peer reviewed and therefore be cautious. Now, some of these preprints, of course, have now been withdrawn. That's happening a lot. So it's just proof that, that you have to be incredibly careful. So our job has become more of a tightrope walkers uh, remit than ever before. At the beginning of this pandemic, we didn't know whether or not you know, face masks were advisable. There were long debates about that. And we've seen similar debates back and forth on virtually every aspect of the question of transmission and risk. And you've had to navigate these risks. You've been at the front end. What is the one thing that you wish you'd have understood better in retrospect that maybe would have improved your reporting or understanding of the risks? Actually, it comes back to something that Sarah said right at the beginning as, you know, the tube, for instance. So I, I've been coming to work every day. It's, I, d- I didn't ever get to stay at home and work because you can't in television. And yes, I was going into hospitals, into intensive care units. And I think I wish that we had known better the transmission route, the, the aerosol versus droplets. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that there is still a, a consensus even on that. And which then comes back to what Sean was saying about the different PPE and how there was a sort of political expediency around what PPE there was. And so you were sort of being sold a, a line that, that you know, this mask would be fine, you know, because, it, because this is the way the virus behaves. And I don't think we should have been told that with the certainty that we were being told that at the time. And you can see now in the second wave how hospitals have almost adapted themselves because, again, as Sean said, you know, the hospital infection rate was terrible. Um, one thing you cannot be when you're a health journalist is a hypochondriac. You just cannot afford to be because you, you, you just wouldn't get out of bed. So my risk assessment for myself for instance, was very different than the risk assessment for my producer or the risk assessment for my camera person, because I dealt with these viruses for my entire career. And I, I respect them, but I also think, you know, I'm demographically, I'm probably safer than some people. And, you know, I wanted that story anyway. Nothing, nothing was going to stop me from going into that intensive care unit. So, uh, Sean, is there anything you wish you'd understood better at the beginning? A whole field of health reporting, which I've had to learn, uh, is around vaccines and infectious diseases and public health kind of science. And specifically for me, I think the area where I really struggled was around the testing aspects and the science around PCR tests and antigen lateral flows. And the science around all of that was was completely new to me. Uh, I came at that completely green. But, you know, better to learn things and keep life interesting. And I think um, it's uh, the, the ability as a journalist to soak up information is, is something I've had to uh, rely on quite heavily in the last 12 months. But it's certainly been a ride, that's for sure. 
I think it's very good for the grey matter, this this pandemic, actually. It's, it's probably exercised my brain more than I've done before. Well, I mean, not just you. I think, you know, the whole British public has had a sort of education and scientific literacy and also numeracy because we've never been besieged by so many numbers. And of course, we've seen some journalists such as Toby Young famously, you know, get a decimal point wrong and tweet about something. So it's really, really important. People do understand some basic, you know, have some basic math skills. Um, what is the story or moment that you're proudest? I think, Victoria, you were telling us that there's this um, story you're revisiting, you're hoping to revisit today, about ECMO machines. The ECMO unit at the Royal Brompton is that they, they put the patients who have failed on ventilators, the ones that they think maybe they, there is just a hope, and really that's all the chance they give them, just a hope, and they put them on these extracorporeal membrane machines that, that do the heart and lungs work for them. And we've revisited it after a year. The thing that struck me about going back to the ECMO unit exactly a year later was that there, one, there has been no relenting of patients because as soon as the COVID patients have gone, then all the other patients who were waiting for their lung, heart transplants and so on needed to come in. But also the lessons that have been learned by the staff and how they had changed the way they did some things, the adaption, the, I mean, massive learning curve for the staff. And then also, when you've been a patient on that ECMO machine, you don't just go home. You don't just get clapped out of the hospital and say thank you to the staff. You have a year, two years, three years of recovery ahead of you. And I don't think that the public has quite got that through their heads. But I was on that ECMO unit exactly a year ago and an alarm went off and the staff came rushing and it was a patient having a heart attack. I didn't know who it was or what their names were. It turned out that the patient that I'd gone to interview for the story that's going out, that was him. And we only found out it was him because his wife recognized the room. And it was so unbelievably moving to see that man alive. But he has a long, long way to go before he'll recover. And his wife, I think she was even more in more trauma than he was because she had spent three, four, five months being told he was going to die. Prepare yourself for the worst. And then he survived. And then prepare yourself for the worst. She said it was her life came to a grinding halt because she was waiting, waiting every day to know if her husband would pull through. Yeah, no, I think it's a very eloquent reminder, really, that we've been besieged by numbers and statistics. And at the end, this is a story about people. So we're talking about this a year on and this successful rollout of vaccines, at least in the UK and, and increasing the US. But of course, worldwide, uh, we've got more cases than at any other point in this whole pandemic. Is it premature to think that this is even halfway over? Yes, I, I think it very definitely is. And, and this is where I get very anxious because we've been so focused on it because of the effect on the UK. And now, of course, the bigger effect is the rest of the world. I'm really, really glad that India has been such a focus and there's been incredibly strong television coverage of that. But we have to remember that that, you know, there's, there are hidden epidemics, I'm perfectly sure, in Africa that we're not seeing. We're not actually seeing the impact in countries that don't report the cases as well, don't count the cases as well, and are not getting vaccines um, in the way they should. And above all, this is a global pandemic and it will come back to bite us. And we're still not really thinking about this properly, I feel. You've all spoken very eloquently about how it's just been a full-time job covering the epidemic or the pandemic in the UK and its ramifications here. Are you now hoping 
that you might be able to get out of the office more, maybe go overseas and cover it from a global perspective? Uh, yeah, I'm desperate to get out of, the, out of this little room. Unlike Victoria, I'm envious of you, Victoria, because you have been able to go into hospitals. And like Sean, I've been imprisoned, I would say, in this tiny room, which is not how I like to do journalism. I have actually been all over the world, and, and thank goodness for that. And, uh, and aren't I lucky? I've done um, stories that have been fascinating because of the people I've spoken to, but it's all been via Zoom virtually, and I want to go out and see the real thing, see, see things really happening. You know, if, as this dies down, I think there's a real risk that we're going to have quite um, a crisis, those of us who cover this, because we've been so much involved in it, and it's been so central to our lives that, that I'm, I'm not sure how we will deal with the end of it. Because I don't know, I'm sure the others would agree, the adrenaline has been pumping day after day after day. I don't think that's very good for you in the long term, actually. I would say last September, I actually went and had some counselling because after everything had died down, I was sitting at my desk and, you know, the story had moved on and I wasn't quite sure where it was going. And I actually couldn't deal with the lack of adrenaline and with, I mean, I can't even describe what the feelings were, but I actually went and, and spoke to a counsellor to say, you know, I don't know what to do with myself. And it was just as well because then it suddenly took off again. Yeah, that, that's that's even now. That's what I'm beginning to think. You know, I'm beginning to get that sensation again. You know, what am I for now? If it, if this story is actually dying down a bit, I mean, there will be a long tail, and and hopefully we will all learn to deal with it through time, um, because it will fade away gradually, not in a hurry. But the transition to normal life for us, I think, is going to be hard. I've certainly had elements of burnout during the last eighteen months. There have been times where. It needed somebody, it needed my, my partner to say to me, you are not well and you need to take a break. And in fact, I'm, I'm really lucky my news desk are wonderful and they actually have uh, sometimes actually instructed me to take time off in order to relax. And so I think people, again, they, you know, we get so much abuse as journalists, but people don't realize what the job is actually like. Yeah, I was lucky enough to go on an intensive care unit and see this and actually it is deeply affecting. And also, I have to say, speaking just day after day to intensive care doctors, nurses and people in the NHS, you know, I've had nurses in tears on the phone to me and you know, that, that stuff weighs heavy. But to end on a high, I do think that as a team of health journalists, the industry has done largely very well. I think we've all done a lot of reporting to be proud of overall. And I hope at some stage... Sarah, Victoria and the rest of the health pack. I hope we all meet in a pub somewhere and share our war stories of coronavirus. But I think overall we've done a great job and the public have been well served, I believe. Thanks for listening to Going Viral. Do have a look at our back catalogue. Series 1 is all about the 1918 Spanish flu. And you could also check out Series 2, The Covid Files, and Series 3, Facts and the Facts. If you enjoy what you hear please give us a like or a review. You can find us on Twitter at goingviral underscore pod and on Instagram at goingviral underscore the podcast. I'm Mark Honigsbaum and my producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. <laughs>